oh, by the way, nobody else said this, but Clinton made it into, what do you call it, consolation semifinals and won that match. So he gets to be, so that placed him, he placed seventh. So he gets to be an alternate to state. So that's pretty cool. And he's uh, trying to see a friend that he hasn't seen in a while. So we don't get to see him this morning. Otherwise, because I didn't get a, well, I shouldn't say that. I've always kind of wish I was more like my wife. I'm the type of person in the stands. It's like, go, go team. I didn't, when I played football, I stood on the sidelines and yelled really loud when I wasn't on the field playing. But as an adult, I'm like, hey, go, go guys. And if everybody else is yelling, yeah, I'll yell loud. But uh when Clinton wins his match and he comes off the thing, I always wish I was my wife because my wife's going, all right, Clinton! You know, and I think you could hear her. To me, I think you can hear her over everybody else in the gym. That's not true. That's not true because there's a lot of other people yelling and shouting stuff too. But I just always wish I was more bold like that uh, with, with come to things like that. But she was cheering, cheering for him at the end. I was too, but I'm like, all right, Clinton. I'm sure he heard that. <laughs> so... Uh, I messed him last night. He went to the hospital. Um, it's pretty swollen. They didn't. They actually didn't think anything was broke, but, but we'll have to. It's going to down the DNC before we get there. Um, tried to get him on the game ready ice machine last night. To see, if, see if there's any way we can get him. It's Caleb Hernandez. They don't know if he sprained or rolled his ankle or broke something. Uh, yeah, that was yeah, that was he was in a lot of pain after that. So Okay. We are continuing in our study on God's covenants and his covenant with us. We're looking at the new covenant right now. Uh, and so we've talked about the fact that there is a new covenant God has with the nation of Israel out in the future. We are here today, and we're looking at this today over here, and that there is a new covenant that he's made for us. A new covenant. What's another, what's another word we could substitute for covenant that we use in modern modern world or modern society? Hold on. All right, my Sunday school class, you don't sign a covenant, you sign a contract. Contract. A. <laughs> Kylie gets an A. I, I, wish, I wish I had more peanut butter cups to give out as prizes, but I... <laughs> and, if, and if you were under 18 and you didn't get your peanut butter cup this morning, you're... Valentine peanut butter cup, you need to come and ask, okay? If you're over 18, don't ask. You don't get those. I get the leftover. No. <laughs> you already got yours. Anyway. Who is that? Okay. So a covenant is a contract, okay? And another thing to add in there is when we're talking about a contract, we are talking about the fact that God has made what to us? Fill in the blank. He's made promises to us. Might be a promise, might be promises. A contract can have multiple promises or it can have a single promise. We have covenants that God made in the Old Testament and he made a single promise with people. But he's made multiple promises to us in this new covenant just as he's made multiple promises to Israel in some of the covenants that he made with them. So last week we looked at the covenant introduced by Jesus in communion. So when we shared communion together last week, that was uh, where Jesus introduced it. And that's part of what you remember when you take communion. He says, this cup is the new covenant, the new covenant by my blood. His blood, his violent death is what it took to inaugurate uh, that new covenant for us. But it didn't explain in a great deal of detail what that new covenant is in any of those statements that Jesus made or that Paul made specifically there. The closest we get is that we have in 1 Corinthians 10, where he's talking about the cup, that it, it involves fellowship. There's something that we're fellowshipping or sharing in. That's why we call it communion, by the way, right? It's uh, something that we're sharing in. But today we're going to go over to the book of 2 Corinthians, because this is really, I would say this is the key text, the key place where we come and we understand something about this new covenant. And I gave you an outline today. Uh, pages 14 and 15. That's not the way you're supposed to do it. You're supposed to have the odd number on the first page, but uh, I, don't know, I apologize. That bothers you. It drives me nuts. But uh, to the more important point, 
we're going to try to get through about half of this outline today because there's a lot of stuff that I want to cover and I kind of know how I am and I'll, I think we'll be fortunate if we can get through, through the first half of this outline. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you're following along in your Bibles, I do have this text up here. I'm, I'm trying not to add a lot of the verses up here because I really want you to look at them in your Bible uh, to help you remember it better. But if you look in verse 6, verse 6 is the, the key verse we're looking at. It says, who also, referring to God from the end of verse 5, has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And we're going to sit for just a moment here on this first part, where it says he's made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Now, what does he mean when he says this part, servants of a new covenant? There's different ways we can look at it. That we are serving the new covenant as though it is something that needs to be served. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, second part of that question is, does that make sense? <laughs> are you actually serving the covenant itself? Is that what you're doing? Are, is, is it something that needs to be served like it's another person that needs to be served? No. And therefore, I don't think that that's what he means when he says we're servants of the new covenant. The second possibility is, and I'm taking the possibilities that, that potentially could make sense. Because there's a lot, there's a number of ways you can understand this expression in the, in the Greek. But we could say we serve the new covenant to others. Is that what we're doing? Are we coming along and serving, taking, taking the new covenant and somehow serving it to others? No. Because in reality, it's going to tell you that actually is God and the Spirit's work. Okay? So I believe that it's this last possibility that it's what we would call, if you want a fancy Greek term for it, if you don't like Greek, then just forget this. Just close your ears and don't listen to this part. But I would call this form, when he says new covenant, it has to do with the Greek form of the words new covenant, I would take these as what I would call an ablative of source. So I would translate that. We serve, and I've added a word there, from an ability promised, ability promised in this new covenant. Or if you just want to just put it in real plain, you'd say we serve from a new kind of covenant. The new kind of covenant has provided some source. It, it, it had a promise that made it possible for us to serve. Everybody get that? However, when you look at this, and I do like the way the New American Standard writes this, it says in verse 6, who has made us adequate as servants. I like the fact that they put it that way. Because some of your Bibles, they translate that word ministers. ministers. That sounds really cool. I'm a minister. I'm a minister. You know what minister means? Servant. And on top of that, it's not a special servant. There's a doulos. A doulos is somebody, interestingly enough, doulos is the word for slave. A doulos slave specifically to a master. He has a specific master. A diakonos, which is what this is, we get the word deacon from it, that type of a servant does common service. Because the word in their culture was used of somebody that served Ah, get this, because this is the way the deacons were. They served tables. They actually could serve in what they what we would understand as like open-air restaurants where people come along. So Dwight comes in and sits down, and Jim comes in and sits down, and Gary and Leslie come in and sit down, and guess what? None, Not one of them is my master. They're all, in a sense, my master. So I don't have one master. I'm serving multiple people. And that's really appropriate for the word diakonos because you're going to serve not just one person. You're going to be serving potentially many people. When they chose the deacons in the book of Acts, what did they do? They served one widow that was their master? No, widows. Multiple widows from the church that the church was helping take care of. So that's the importance of this word diakonia and diakonos. He's talking about a type of service or a person that serves others and can serve multiple people. So it's a general kind of service as opposed to, in fact, the idea of diakonia, that the word for service, actually is that it's, it's you attending to your job is more, is more significant than just having a single master. That's really kind of the background of the idea of this word different from the Hebrew or the Greek word doulos, pardon me. So 
We are serving from an ability promised in this new covenant. Okay. Put it another way, God has made a promise that he's going to give you something sufficient to serve. Now, when I put up the word ability up there, you don't see the word ability in there, but look in verse 6. It says he is all, this is the word, New American Standard reads, and I'm going to ask you for help here in just a minute, but the New American Standard says, who also has made us adequate as servants. So you may have a different word other than adequate. Competent. Sufficient, competent. It's a word in the Greek, the word hikanos, and it has to do with enough or strong enough for the task. Um, I have in my backyard, I have a piece of granite that's about, I'm going to guess this big, about that thick. I found it when I was messing around with my daughters many years ago. We were flying kites or something, and we were down in this field down below here, and it was sticking kind of partly out of the ground about that much. And it was just, you know, just a chunk of granite out there. And I think, well, that's a waste. That'd be a nice thing in the yard. It would be a cool landscape piece. And we were trying to figure out what we were doing at the disaster that was our backyard. This is probably 25 years ago. And, uh, but I'm like, you know what? There is no way I'm going to move that piece of granite. I tried to get underneath that. I took a pry bar or a long bar and I got underneath there and I, I could kind of lift it up. But I'm like, I am never going to get that from way down in that field way up to my place. Because I was not sufficient, strong enough, adequate, or competent to carry that. John Larson brought his little tractor and put the scoop underneath it, picked it up and hauled it up there. And then we pushed it around into place with his little tractor. Because, well, he couldn't, even he and I could not get underneath that and carry it. We were going to break our backs. We might have carried it five feet and then dropped it on one of our feet, knowing us. But anyway, I shouldn't put that on John. I would have dropped it on my foot. But anyway, the point being here is that he's made us adequate or strong enough or sufficient or enough to be servants. So that's why I use the word ability, because I think that we're, we're talking, it reflects this idea of what God has done for us to serve. And in the end, just to kind of express this, you know what this new covenant, guess what this new covenant is going to be about? It's going to be about serving. <laughs> surprise, surprise. And it's going to be about, get the other part, I want to make sure we say this right now because I don't want you to miss this if I get chasing rabbit trails along the way. It's about serving, but it is also about you reflecting or living out Christ's likeness. In fact, as I was going back over these notes over the last two weeks, I started making a list in Scripture of statements that talk about us in some way or another showing Christ-likeness or reflecting Christ-likeness. And I'm just like, and every once in a while, like Peg and I were reading the other night, and I'm like, oh, I gotta, we got to put that one down. I forgot that one. Add another one to the list and add another one to the list. And I'm like, this is really cool that you and I, as clay pots, I'm borrowing that from Paul from 2 Corinthians here. We get to have this glory that is Christ in us. Is that incredible? You are a clay pot. Ben just told us, well, he didn't tell us. Moses told us this in writing this down. But Ben had us go through it this morning. What was Adam made out of? The dust of the ground. The dust of the ground. And that, you mold that and it becomes... Clay, remember Jesus, spit in the ground, takes that dust of the ground, makes clay out of it, smears it on the eyes of the man that is blind. So God took <laughs> dust, made, shall we say, makes clay out of it, forms Adam's physical nature. We are, these are clay pots. These are clay pots. In fact, just, just to illustrate that, when he says, from dust you were taken and to dust you shall return, you're going to eat. You're going to eat by the sweat of your brow until you return to the dust. We saw that in the curse this morning. We're reading that. I have an uncle that used to live in Pennsylvania, and he had a friend that was an historian. I mean, literally, he actually had a history degree, and he worked as an historian for people, doing research for families out there. And there was a family that had, you might find this really disgusting. I, I don't want to belabor the story too much, but... The grandfather, I believe it was, I, I probably don't have all this story right because it's been a long time since I heard all the details, but the great-grandfather or something had been a sea captain. And so he made arrangements that he was to be embalmed or whatever they did at that time 
put him in a casket and they put a portal like this right here. And they mounted the casket to a cliff wall where there was a path that went by from the house to another part so that he would always be looking. And then they did it out in the sea where the family house was so he'd be looking out to sea. But the problem was, is after a while, every time they walked by, oh, there's grandpa looking at me, you know? And, you know, some people are okay with that. There are countries in the world where they have former leaders that have been involved and still in glass cases and people still walk by and show their honor even almost a century after their death. But he got really the family got tired of this, and so they hired this historian to do some research on all of what was there. He was involved in doing some research for the family in this, but he was in there at the time that they also were going to have the casket moved to a different site because they were tired of looking at this. And the story goes that this man who had been dead for over 100 years, when they went to release the casket from the wall, it broke the seal. And they said, dust to dust? I mean, there's still a skeleton in there, but almost all the rest of it just went like that. They were like, whoa! Well, that was not supposed to happen. It was an accident. But that guy who was a believer... That guy who was a believer, this historian that was doing the work for this research for the family, as a, as a believer, he was like, that was just so vivid of this idea that we're from dust to dust. I'm way off track, but the whole point of it is we are creatures of dust. We're in clay pots, and they of themselves are not all that glorious. Okay? The glory that we get is going to be from a relationship we have with Jesus Christ. So with that then, when we're talking about this, we're talking about that we serve from an ability promised in the new covenant because we are incapable otherwise. Look what Paul says right here in this context. Let's go back up to verse 1. I'm going to read down through this. We're going to come back to one of these things in a little while. But verse 1, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or to you or from you. In other words, this is probably because of these false apostles that came along and said, well, is Paul giving you a letter that commends him? Apparently they were producing fake letters of commendation. And they're suggesting, well, Paul's never showed up with a letter of commendation. But Paul says, you're our letters. This is, this is, to some degree, this could be like me as a pastor. If you were going, wait a second, you've been pastoring here for a while, but have you ever given us a letter that commends you to us? And I would say, has God changed your life? And hopefully you'd say, yeah. Has God helped you to understand how to have victory? Hopefully you've learned that. Have you learned how to show out Christ's likeness and actually intentionally, not by grit and determination, not by white knuckling it, but actually by resting in Christ, have you learned how to demonstrate the fruit from the Spirit? And then I could ask, and I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to be uh, arrogant in saying this, but I could ask for maybe some of you. Some of you have probably learned this before I ever knew you, but there might be some of you that I'd say, and where did you learn that? And hopefully you'd say, well, in the Bible, okay? And then I'd say, and who took the Bible and taught that to you? And hopefully you'd say, well, you did. And you could also say Jim and Josh and other people, but the point is I could say, see, you're the letter of commendation. Because we've taken you to the word of God and we've shown you what God said. And this is what Paul says. You're our letter of commendation. You are a reflection. You're the letter that's written because you're, you're the product of some of our work. And we'd say, Paul, you're being arrogant. No, Paul's not being arrogant. He he's just recognizing what I hope all of you can recognize. That God uses us in other people's lives. And that's a humbling thing. Because does God actually need any of us? No, he could do it without us. But he hasn't chosen to do that. He's chosen to use us in life, in other people's lives. And, uh, well, with believers that don't go to church, and I know some, and I encourage them to be going to church, I used to just say, you know what? You need God's people. And that's true. But you know the other thing? God's people need you. It's a two-way street. You are not only robbing yourself of fellowship, but you're robbing other people of fellowship. Not only are you missing out on the work that God might do in your life through other people, but those people are missing out on the work that God might do in, your, in their life through you. 
you all get that? If you're a part of the body of Christ, you're important. Paul tells us that in enough other passages. He tells us that in 1 Corinthians 12. Every part of the body is important. Why? Because God's chosen it to be that way. So he goes on here. He says, so you are our letters. You're written in our hearts, known and read by all men. But it is plainly visible, verse 3, that you are a letter of Christ. In other words, when, when we pick up the letter, we read that. It's like, oh, Christ wrote this letter. This is, this is a letter that says something about Christ. You've heard, you've heard me say, for a lot of people in the world, you are the only Bible they will ever read. There are people that may own Bibles. They may have picked it up. They may have read two or three verses out of it and were like, oh, this is hard. And they put it away. But you ought to be a Bible. This is, this is much as saying, see, you're a letter of Christ. People ought to be able to read something in your life. Other believers especially ought to be able to read that, that you're a letter of Christ. Cared for by us. And that word cared for in the New American Standard is the word minister or served. It's just they're translating it. Cared for by us is simply our word, our diakoneo. Okay, from diakon, diakonos and diakonia. Okay, this is our word for just common service. Written, not with ink, but it's written by the Spirit of the living God. So this is something that the Holy Spirit does. He's going to do some writing in your life. See, it's, Tim doesn't do this. Ben doesn't do this. Josh doesn't do this. Jim doesn't do this. Or any other teachers in our church. They're not the ones that write it. We're just the servants that he uses because the Spirit in the end is actually the one that writes in our hearts. Now, obviously, when he says writing, that's a metaphor, right? It's a metaphor for the Spirit's work in our life that causes us to reflect Christ's likeness, which he's going to talk about here in a little bit. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. And such confidence we have through Christ toward God. Notice, it's through Christ. We have this confidence through Christ. This is all, because this is, this is all about you being joined to Christ in the end. This is about the Spirit how does he write Christ in your hearts? How does he write you as a letter of Christ? He's joined you to Christ. We've been over this many times. I'm not taking you to all the scriptures where we've looked at. But when you believed, God, the Spirit, took your human spirit and joined you with the divine spirit and joined you with Christ so that Christ now dwells in you. I didn't know what that meant when I was a kid, but I tell you, that was one of the things I knew. Jesus is in my heart. I didn't know what that meant. But I could have told you. Is Jesus in, where is Jesus? He's in my heart. I could have told you that. As a five-year-old, I could have told you that. It was drilled into me. I didn't know anything about being in Christ, but I knew about Christ being in me. <laughs> Just that fact. I didn't know what that meant. Anyway, verse 5 then. Not that we are, here it is, not that we are adequate. That same word we have down below, and this is the point. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything of ourselves, for our adequacy or our sufficiency is from God. And it's specifically, as he's going to tell us in the next verse, it has to do with the Spirit. The Spirit is the one giving us this power, this adequacy. He's the one that empowers. Scripture says if you intentionally want power, you got to go to your position in Christ. But Christ is not the one that empowers you. The Holy Spirit empowers you when you're relating to who you are in Christ. And he doesn't empower you here. You're not all of a sudden, I'm powerful in Christ. Look at this. I can help pick up big logs and just toss them. I helped Gordon load some, some of this wood out here, I don't know, a few weeks ago when he was cutting some of that stuff up. And I'm lifting some of those things and I'm thinking, Gordon, we need to cut that one down because I can't lift it. You know, Gordon might have been able to help that, but I wasn't going to be able to get that one off the ground. Now without hurting myself, and then probably not. That's not the strength. It's strength here. It's strength to be able to be a servant. It's strength to be able to, oh, well, we kind of started looking at it this last Wednesday night uh, in our study in the upper room, Christ's example of washing feet. Do you know that takes strength to be a foot washer? Because that is not our nature. Our nature generally is not one that I want to do lowly, dirty jobs. We usually like to be somebody that, you know, keeps our hands clean. But part of being in the body of Christ and being made serve a servant is that we are willing to do anything that other believers need, no matter how filthy, stinking dirty it is. And if you can't do that, there's a chance 
that you're trying to do this Christian life thing, the service, by your own grit and determination. Knock it off! <laughs> Start letting the Spirit really empower you. So this is what he's talking about. We're talking about this new covenant. We're talking about the Spirit doing a work that he gives us the ability to be transformed by the Spirit's work so that Christ is seen outwardly through us, so that we serve. And when we serve, people should be seeing Christ, not us. So, let's go back and let's look at some examples leading up to this in first or in 2 Corinthians. Let's go back to chapter 1. Now, your outline, I've just kind of caught the key verse on this, but I want to go back and here to verse 3. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3, it says, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction or adversity, so that we may be able to comfort those who are afflicted with the comfort with we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient, uh, um, my page, my plate, turn my page here, patient endurance of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Verse 7, And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our suffering, you will also be of our comfort. So the first thing that, he, that Paul brings out that this letter starts with, you want to know the first way that Paul looked at, at, at this? And this is a good lesson for all of us. When you go through something hard, when you, when you face a challenge, if any, I'm not going to take a poll, so raise your metaphorical hand. You don't have to literally raise it. You get it. Get it. How many of you would say that you face something, and when it comes on, there's a certain part of you that goes, I can't do this. Or you try to do it for a while and you're like, this isn't working. I don't know what's going on. And you're just like, God, what's, what's the problem? Why am I going through this? This is horrible. And then somewhere along the line, God begins to show you what he can do. He begins to find, show you that you can have peace in the midst of a really bad situation. That you can actually get your head back in the game. And that you can move ahead. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we don't because it takes us a long time to let go. I uh, recently had a conversation with somebody where I was saying, you know, going through a satanic attack, sometimes you can't, sometimes we can't overcome a satanic attack because the problem is something we don't want to let go of. We're so confident, I have to do this. I have to. I have to do this. this I know I have to do this. And God's just saying, just let go of it. You don't have to do that. You've got yourself, well, as he says over to, to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, you've got yourself ensnared. In fact, I think we talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago when we were out at Orth's on Wednesday night. So for those of you, I, I've got a little book that my grandma gave me called Jungle Doctor Stories, I think it is, about a doctor missionary. And he tells these, these stories in there. And he was talking about how sin is, how sin is like a snare that catches us. And the story he used of two animals, a monkey and a snake. And the monkey, they used to take these big, um, I don't remember, there was what they called those, jerry cans. Jerry cans, that's what it was. That they'd haul gas around in. You guys know what I'm talking about? And they cut a hole just big enough for these monkeys to stick their hands in. And they put peanuts in there. And the monkey would reach in to grab those peanuts, but when they go to pull them out, they couldn't get their hand out through the hole. And the monkeys are so determined to get those peanuts that they refuse to let go of those peanuts. The very, they want that so bad that they won't let it go, and now they're stuck. And the monkeys can't get away with this big, heavy jerry can. They can drag it, but they're not going to be able to outrun the, their captors. And then the other story was about a snake that was stealing eggs. And it was coming in through a hole in the hen house. And what was they did? But they put right in the path where the snake was going to come in, they put a hard-boiled egg. And that snake went in there, found the hard-boiled egg, swallowed it, and then tried to go back out. And see, the other egg with their stuff, they could squish it down and it would break up, but the hard-boiled egg wouldn't break. And they got stuck and they couldn't get back through the hole. And they'd come and they were able to kill the snake that was stealing their eggs. Both of those were illustrations. I always thought those were really cool stories as a kid. Uh, 
But both of those were illustrations of the fact that, you know, sometimes when Satan attacks us or when we go through difficult things, sometimes those difficult things are because we have something we don't want to let go of. And God's just saying, let go of it. You don't need it. Yes, I do. I have to accomplish this thing. It's notable. It's important. It's, it's what you want me to do, right? And God's going, no. You think I want you to do that, but I don't. And so when you move to that point, you know what God's able to do? What, what is he saying here when you're going through this adversity? He says, then you are able to be comforted by God. You're able to go through this hard thing and God's able to comfort you. And it's not just about you in the end too. That comfort then is about other people. And I'm going to bet all of you, when you've gone through something hard, that after you come through it, maybe not immediately, but maybe one or two or three years down the road, you're going to find somebody else going through something very similar to what you went through. And you're going to find hey, God took me through this thing. Let's sit down and let's talk about this a little bit. <laughs> let's talk about this thing. And you're able then to help encourage them how they also can enjoy the comfort that God used in your life. Everybody get that? Now that's how this starts. But we could go back and we go back over to chapter 3 and we could say, who's sufficient for this? <laughs> well, none of us are. Because it wasn't my comfort, it was God's comforting me. It came from the outside. It came from God doing this work in my life. And then he gives me the ability to have the presence of mind to recognize that I now can turn around and share this with somebody else. Let's move on to the next one that Paul says in, in this passage. If we look down in verse 12, he said, For our proud confidence, or boast, is the, 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 the Greek word here, is this. It's the testimony of our conscience, that in and we have, there's a problem here about whether we have simplicity or holiness. Um, probably simplicity is better supported a little bit in this passage, but in sincerity from God, not in wisdom from the flesh, but in the grace from God, we have conducted ourselves in the world even more abundantly for you. In other words, Paul says, what you see is what you get. In simplicity and in sincerity with regard to God. Paul says, I don't, Paul tells us this more than once about himself. I don't, I don't put up a guise up here. I don't try to make myself look cooler, fancier, better. Like you should be impressed by Paul's presence. Paul says, there's nothing impressive about my presence. In fact, I always think it's interesting. You know, when he writes the Galatians and he says, when I first arrived, he says, you received the word. And so I was a messenger from God. And yet he says on the outward, he says, I looked so horrible that you would have thrown up. It's the, the, the language that he uses in the Greek over there in Galatians 4. And he's apparently whatever he did, he says, and you would have plucked your eyes out and given them. So apparently it happened here. I mean, you can put a robe on and nobody has to see these scars. But what do you do here if you're all mashed up and beat up in the face? Can't hide that. So there was nothing impressive of Paul himself after he went through that circumstance. And Paul says, so what you see is what you get. And I don't put on airs. This is what Paul's getting. I don't put on airs as though, hey, I'm the apostle Paul. Sit down. Get ready. I will dazzle you with my oratory skills. So you got to use a fancy word like that. I'll talk well. <laughs> no, Paul didn't do that. In fact, the interesting thing is Paul could... Paul could stand on Mars Hill and he could actually interact with, the, with the, the philosophers. And if Paul sounded like a hayseed, the philosophers wouldn't have even entertained him. So we know Paul could talk like that. But you know what? I don't think Paul was like that when he was with believers. He talked with simplicity. And he taught with sincerity. What they saw was, but who's sufficient for that? That's not human nature for most of us. There have been, there have been people that put on airs. There used to be a, a, a head of a, of a Bible college in the Portland area. And I remember I got to hear him when I was in seminary, although I think he was gone by then. He might not have been. And he had a British accent. But you know, he didn't have a British accent because you know where he was from? He was from Portland. But when he spoke on the air, on the radio, he faked a British accent because he thought it would make people impressed that they would listen to him better if he sounded like he was British. He changed the way he was. 
Have any of you ever heard J. J. Vernon McGee do his Sunday messages? Not his weekly Bible study, his Sunday messages? He doesn't have a southern drawl. He doesn't sound like he doesn't sound like the guy that just got off the bus. He sounds like a guy that went to seminary and a guy that could talk clearly. But you know what he did on his daily radio show? He kind of made himself kind of sound like, hey, hey guys, we're going to do this thing here, you know, and I'm not making fun. I'm, I, I really appreciate J. Vernon McGee, but I'm just saying he thought he could make himself more relatable by kind of trying to talk like the everyday man. There we go. But whether you, whether you try to change it that way or try to change it to make yourself more important, this is what Paul says, I don't do any of that. I don't try to make myself sound more important. I don't try to function like I'm more important. I just do this in this simplicity. And that's important. Does that, again, I would say goes back to that he's doing this by the ministry of the Spirit because it's not human nature to just be yourself in front of everybody. Don't we tell you that? When you tell kids to get up at school and do a speech, you tell them, just calm, calm down and be yourself. But they're all like, I don't want to be myself. I don't want people to know who I am. I want them to think I'm cool. I want polish, right? That's kind of human nature. We want people to be impressed rather than just say, hey, they should be impressed by what I have to say, not impressed with me. And so Paul, again, this is one of these things that Paul says, this is about the way he functioned. The next thing, turn over to chapter 2. In chapter 2, in verse 14, he says, But thanks is to God, or grace, literally grace is by God, who always is leading us triumphantly in Christ. Now, just to understand what he means to lead us triumphantly, this is like, this is like think, think of wars where you've had the, the, the army that has liberated the people from, well, from the Nazis that came into France. And what do they do? They have parades through the streets of Paris and, and all these other villages as they liberate them. The people are, there's confetti and there's blowing whistles and they're cheering them on as they, as these, they're going through there and they've been, they're being led triumphantly. This is his picture. He says, he, uh, get back to my verse, that he always leads us triumphantly in Christ. In other words, he's, we are in a parade because he has won and we get to be with the, with the victor. And it is plainly visible through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. In other words, as we're doing this, people on the sidelines, they, they should be, oh, this is another one of those Christ-like things. They get to smell him. They get to smell him as we go by. But notice what he says. For we are a fragrance of Christ. Remember I just told you. Fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing among the believers and those who are unbelievers. To the one we are an aroma of death to death, but in the others, the aroma of life to life. In other words, unbelievers watch you living your Christian life, and they, Paul says they smell you, and it's like, oh, something died? Oh, you know what that's like, right? You know? Or believers. Oh, I smell life. I smell life. But notice what he says at the end of this. Who is, oh, there's that word again. Who is adequate for these things? In other words, who's strong enough? Who's enough that you can actually be led in this triumphal parade and people can smell an aroma of Christ on you? This is, this is again, it's a metaphor. But what he's saying is, when you, as you're living your life every day, Think about this. When, you're, when you go out today, out there into the world, wherever you're going, go to your home. Some of you are going to go watch the Super Bowl. I have no idea who's even playing in it. Is it Rams? Is that right? Yep. Oh, I got one of them. Okay. See, I'm just, I told Peg we we're going to have a Super Bowl party for non-Super Bowl people where we're not going to watch the Super Bowl. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have TV that does that anyway. I don't have any problem with anybody watching the Super Bowl. I just, anyway. anyway. But some of you may go do that today. And you may be together with other people that want to do that. And when you go out to do those things, you go to your job tomorrow, or you're interacting with your family, whatever you're doing, who's adequate, who's strong enough that you could actually be one that's led in a triumphal parade and you could give off the aroma that people can smell Christ on you? Now, they may smell Christ and it smells like death, or they may smell Christ and it may smell like life. Kind of depends on their perspective. 
but they ought to be able to smell Christ. Again, another way of like saying they get to see Christ. Does everybody get that? Who's adequate for that? Well, none of us are. None of us are adequate for that. That's why, we're, that's why we keep moving forward to this passage where he says, who's adequate for these things? None of us are. But the new covenant, the promise of God, that has made us adequate by the work of the Spirit. So when Kenya gets up tomorrow morning and goes to school, and she walks among all these kids, many of whom do not really know who Jesus Christ is, she can walk through the halls of the school, and she not only can, the one perspective we'd say, manifest or reflect Christ, but she can give off the aroma of Christ. That's going to have to do with your demeanor, the way you think, the way you react. And it's things that the Holy Spirit is doing in our life. You can't do it yourself. You can try. You can white-knuckle it. That's a, I haven't thought that expression. That was an expression Jeremy used as I've been talking with him lately about white-knuckling. And I thought, yeah, that's, a really good, that's a good way to describe the way a lot of us try to live the Christian life. We know the good things we ought to do and the bad things we ought not to do. And we just... We just do this. We're, we're going to be good if it kills us. <laughs> it doesn't, you know, in the end, it, it doesn't, that doesn't smell like Christ. That does not reflect Christ. That does not reflect Christ. We reflect Christ when, well, when we relate to who God says we are in Christ. I picked on Kenya, but we could do that with any of us in here today because all of us are going to be in some setting tomorrow where you and I have the potential, even in just the mundane aspects of life that all of us have to be involved in, that we can reflect Christ. When I come out of the back bedroom to come out and eat my bowl of oatmeal, I get to manifest Christ to my wife or I can manifest Tim. Yes, Josh. Is it a stretch to say that this whole activity and this uh, wording of savor, it's a sweet savor, being that that's the terminology used that the fat burning and a sacrifice, that this is is connected to the, our activity as believer priests. Oh, sure it Unless is. When you're living out love in the new commandment, it's actually part of that priestly service. It is. It is. Thank you. I don't need to finish the message now. Josh did it for us. Then. But that is, the, that, that is really where this goes. That's, that is exactly where this all goes. We go over to Romans chapter 12. You present your body as a what? A living sacrifice. And what's the purpose of presenting as a living sacrifice? So that through you, God, you get to serve. You can serve. That's what this is about. I've got a couple more here that I... Um, that I would like to uh, try to catch here. Oh, we've already gone to go over the, those. Look at that. Look at that. We've made our time. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we've already talked about the fact that we're letters of Christ. How do people read Christ in you? Well, they read Christ in you as you serve. They ought to see, they ought to see, you, as, as a, they ought to see you as a servant. Believers ought to see you as a servant. But you know what? And, and we've talked about this. I think we had this conversation just this, I think it was this last Wednesday night, and we're talking about the upper room. The command, the new command for us is to do what? Love one another. That's about other believers. Okay. But we always have a, have a, have a question come up. And Josh jumped in on this one the other night at Bible study um, that a lot of times we're thinking, well, aren't we supposed to love the world? But you know what actually is, what the world thinks of as love is actually our acts of goodness which is what Paul calls us to in Galatians 6.10, you do good unto all, but especially the household of the faith. So actually, that's what they think. When you do good to them, they think that's love. That's different than laying down your life in place of somebody. And so as we're doing this, as we're living as a letter of Christ, when you go out into the world, it's been able to, it's been able to those opportunities to be good. That also is a thing. Now, I really think, just to be real honest here, primarily Paul is chiefly looking at the opportunity you have to serve other believers and reflect Christ in that way. But having said that, he obviously said that in that triumphal parade, some of you smell death 
or some people smell death and some people smell life. And the ones that smell death clearly are, from what he said, those who are perishing. So, yeah, even the unsaved are watching our lives and watching what they're doing. And people are reading us, as we saw here in 2 Corinthians 3. We looked at that a while ago. In verse 3 of chapter 3, you are plainly visible uh, that you are a letter of Christ. And I know our English Bibles, they continue to use this word manifest. And I, I, uh, Brooklyn, Brooklyn, do you know what the word manifest means? You don't know. Kylie, manifest. Jacob, manifest. Okay, and that's a good example. When we use that word manifest, it's actually, it's actually a translation of a Greek word that means visible or plainly visible. When you get a shipping manifest, if you, for those of you that have never worked in a warehouse or something, or you get freight come in, that shipping manifest tells you everything that's supposed to be there. Because you know what? When you look at that big pallet with all that stuff shrink-wrapped in a bunch of boxes, you don't know everything that's there. Of course, if you're smart, then you break that down and you go through and make sure everything they said is there is actually there. Because <laughs> sometimes you find out something's missing. But that's why they call it a manifest. It tells you what's there, what's present. It makes it visible to you because you can't actually see it. Here he says, you, it is manifest or, okay, you kids that I asked the question of, Manifest means it's plainly visible. It is plainly visible that you are letters of Christ. This is what they ought to be able to see. Plainly seen. Plainly seen that you are letters of Christ. And all of this, just as we close, we didn't get quite as far as I thought, but that's okay. We'll come back and pick up the next next week. But come back down to our verses. He says in verse 4, And such confidence we have, through Christ, facing God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything of ourselves. In other words, we're not adequate to go, I can do this. I got this. So we picked on Kenya earlier. It's not like Kenya jumps out of bed in the morning and goes, hey, this is God day. I got this. No, it's where you get out of bed and go, you know what? There is no way, there is no way that I can show forth Christ's likeness today if it weren't for God's work in my life. People would just see a religious version of me. And I don't want them to see religious, Tim. I want them to see Christ through me. So we get out of bed and say, you know what? Father, I am seated at your right hand in Christ, freed from my sin nature, alive to you, and connected with all these other believers. And because of that, the Spirit can produce the fruit through me. He can produce Christ's likeness through me. He can make Christ visible through me, a clay pot. All of this today should be showing you these are promises. These are things that are showing you the, this promise that the new covenant is about Christ being in you and the ministry of the Spirit so that you can actually be living this out every moment of the day. It's a potential. It's a potential. That's part of what this New Covenant promises. Now, just as a close, for contrast, are any of those promises over in Jeremiah 31, where God says he's going to make a new covenant with them? No. That new covenant over there, when he talks about them, in Jeremiah chapter 31, as he says he is not going to put the law out here, he's going to put the law in their hearts. What do you say he puts in our hearts here? Christ. Are you going to say Christ is the law? You see the contrast? Israel, he's going to write the law in their hearts. Even our new covenant is better than Israel's new covenant. I'm not trying to denigrate their new covenant. Their new covenant is good for them. But ours is even better because it's Christ written in our hearts. <clears throat> and it's not written there to make us to be like a governor, like the law to keep us in line. It's so that we can actually reflect Christ's likeness out there as we operate in the world. That's what it's about. 
so that when Ben has to go down to the store tomorrow and his employees come in and then customers come in, and you got to deal with those people. And they're everybody's wonderful. Oh, some of them are probably pretty nice, but you got to deal with people that are difficult. You can reflect Christ-likeness as you're interacting with them, as you're dealing with them, that they can actually see Christ. And some of them are going to smell that, and they're going to go, oh, that's good. That smells good. So Josh is using the illustration of the burning something out back. And I know, I've told you this thing. Peg and I might be taking a walk, and you go, it's, it's just this late afternoon evenings. And you go around, you walk through your neighborhood, and you can tell, oh, we're inviting ourselves to their house. I don't know what they're cooking, but whatever it is, it smells good. They're grilling something in the backyard. Mmm. But you also ever smell that smell that's really obnoxious? You're going... <laughs> well, to be honest, there was a time that we had some, some pork steaks that somebody gave us, and they were really fatty many years ago. And this person bragged on, oh, this stuff is so great. I was raising it over at Ellensburg, and uh, we cooked it out there. And I'm telling you, that fat dripped, and that thing burned. And we had charcoal briquettes when we were done, and we had to eat something different for supper because we could not put the fire out. It was so bad. Yeah, that, that was Tim. But, you know, sometimes it's, that, it's your neighbors that are burning that pile of nasty, stinky weeds, and it's smoldering because it's damp, and it just is noxious. Two different smells. Could be a good smell, could be a bad smell. Hopefully, we're giving off that aroma of Christ. However a person takes it, we're giving off an aroma of Christ. That's our opportunity. I'm not charging you to do that. I'm just encouraging you when you go out this week to realize this is a possibility. It's a promise he made. It's a promise that you can relate to and you can claim and you can actually enjoy and live that out. Even this very day, even before you get up off of your seat and shake hands or talk with somebody afterwards, you can begin living that out so that even these people right here can smell the aroma of Christ and read a letter of Christ in your life. Father, we're thankful for the promises of this new covenant the privilege we have of going through all kinds of things, hardships, going through opportunities to serve, and in all of that, you give us this privilege either way to demonstrate the kind of character, the kind of life that your son Jesus Christ lived when he walked this earth. Thankful for that wonderful, wonderful privilege and for your word that tells us about the privileges connected with this new covenant. Whatever you have in store for us in the remainder of the day, that we might go out in a triumphal parade led by you and in a triumphal parade in which we actually are an aroma of life unto life or death to death, but an aroma of Christ. And we thank you for it. Amen.